Pat's Podium, a Retro Nerds podcast. Hello, welcome to Retro Nerds. My name is Pat. I'd like to talk with you about Philip K. Dick and his influence on pop culture. If you're listening to this, I'm assuming that you have some knowledge of movies like The Matrix or V for Vendetta, as well as The Watchmen, or albums from U2, Octoon Babies, Europa, Radiohead, OK Computer. Specifically those, but I could probably name off another dozen movies, songs, and albums. Those are the ones I'd like to focus on today. For those of you who do not know who Philip K. Dick is, he was born in the Depression in 1928 in Chicago, spent a short period of his childhood in the Midwest before he moved to California, where he lived most of the rest of his life. He was the second-born twin of a stillborn sister. He didn't publicly acknowledge that very often, but in private letters, especially closer to the end of his life, he did feel the loss of that sister. I believe it actually comes out almost subconsciously in a lot of his writing. He typically defers to the women in his life quite a bit, both in his writings and in his personal life. Pretty much made himself the subservient person in relationships with women. Uh, Subservient might be a little too harsh, but he typically was the lesser role once he was in a relationship. They really didn't last a long time. Again, he died before he turned 60. He was 55. And he'd been married five times, had been in multiple relationships. Actually, he'd gone back and forth with certain women in his life. So he really wasn't known for long, healthy relationships. He was a science fiction writer, really started to gain prominence in the mid-50s. Before that, he had written pulp science fiction for magazines, done that for a number of years before he started to become known. He really kind of took off in the late 50s, early 60s. But unfortunately, financially, he was never really quite able to find his footing. So he did fall into these slumps where he essentially wrote mostly just for subsistence, not really for the art form itself. When I say art form, I literally mean that. I think that the majority of Philip K. Dick's writing has a lot more going on than just your typical uh, genre interpretation of science fiction. A couple things that I think you should know about him before we go too much further. He did go to college in Berkeley. He spent quite a bit of his life mostly in the Bay Area in California. He did live down south for a little while, uh, but he lived mostly in the Bay Area. Uh, For times he lived in Oakland, he lived in Berkeley, he lived in Point Reyes Station, He lived a little further down into the bay. A lot of his writing happened in the early time in Berkeley. He really hit his high mark. Most of the books that are highly recognized, the ones that are award-winning, Blow My Tears, The Policeman Said, The Man in the High Castle, Dandroid's Dream of Electric Sheep, those were all written in Point Reyes. And then he spent another good chunk of his time in Berkeley. That's actually where he went to school, the University of California in Berkeley. There, because of financial circumstances, when he went to school, he had to join the ROTC, which again, for those of you that know anything about Philip K. Dick as a person, he had absolutely nothing to do with the military. In fact, he had signed papers withholding his taxes during the Vietnam War, which at the later part of his life, he was kind of haunted by that. He was afraid that He had kind of been put on this government watch list and uh, started to believe that he could have even been being watched or on a blacklist. 
Most of his endeavors in school had to do with either uh, classical philosophy or Gothic philosophy or Renaissance philosophy. He, he kind of gravitated towards philosophical stuff, but he also was very heavily influenced with world history, specifically post-Renaissance, uh, Western Europe, a lot of the times that kind of really created the Holy Roman Empire and, and the Napoleonic Age. Those were his real big drives, philosophy and Western civilization. He also worked at a, at a music store in order to continue to be able to pay for his tuition. And this is another thing that cursory fans of Philip K. Dick may not touch on because he really doesn't fixate on it, but he almost always has a musical component to a lot of his books. He either has his protagonists listen to specific, he always mentions specific uh, sonnets, or movements from classical music where he talks about you know a lot of these are near future stories so a lot of times he talks about rock and roll or music in general but he almost always has some tag to music in his stories which kind of shows just how important music was to him later in life he actually had fixations on linda ronstadt in the 70s early 70s and then Rolling Stones, he was very influenced by the Rolling Stones as well as classical music, which are all, to me, cool things to know about the person. After you've read half dozen or so of his books and you start to see how music plays into it, you could see that he really did have this driving influence with music in his life. Living in Berkeley at that time was kind of like a heyday for science fiction writers. Robert Heinlein lived in Berkeley for a little while. Arthur C. Clarke was known to come in and out of there. There were several writers of science fiction that are now looking backwards seen as masters or people of high regard that he actually associated with quite a bit. He would go to dinner parties with a lot of these folks. They would share ideas. In fact, uh, some people have quoted Philip K. Dick as being more famous for giving other writers incredible ideas or him throwing away more ideas than most writers had in a lifetime. And his writing really is that profuse. It, when you go down the list of stories and novellas and, and books that he's written for that short period of time, especially for the fact that when you think about all the other things that were going on in his life, he really did write a lot. And his stories usually weren't just throwaway stories, unfortunately, the way that they've been perceived or almost the way that uh, the marketing made it out to be. His stories almost always have a very high philosophical bent to them. They usually are tied into thoughts of what is human, a lot about just what is the life that we live. Some of the stories that he's he's written that you may be aware of is obviously Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which became Blade Runner, The Man in the High Castle, uh, Martian Death Trap, Ubik, which is a, which is an incredible story unto itself, The Three Stick Mata of Palmer Eldritch, Scanner Darkly. The Vallis Trilogy, and then multiple others. Uh, uh, the story, We'll Remember It For You Wholesale, became Total Recall, both versions. There was a short story called Minority Report, and tons and tons and tons of others. You can almost pick up any Philip K. Dick story and find something intriguing about it. Sometimes his short stories don't really belie who he was. And again, I think that was mostly the drive to just get content out there to get paid. But most of his novels and his books have something going on, which is pretty impressive when you think about the volume and really just his need to be paid in order to make a living. So 
talking about the books for a second. The Divine Invasion is one that I'd like to specifically focus on. But before we do that, I want to reference another book, which you'll see undercurrents of what we talk about that touch on things, and then we'll jump straight into the others. There's a short book that Philip K. Dick wrote in the early 60s called The Penultimate Truth. And this is a story about a class society in the near future that was supposedly a World War III, and a lot of his books have to do with World War III um, and the aftermath, usually years afterwards. And essentially, in The Penultimate Truth, there's a caste society. One lives on the surface, and these people are the royalty, so to speak. They kind of have all of their services performed for them and their goods made by them, by the people that are underground. And these people were duped into thinking that the Third World War had destroyed Earth as we know it, and it's uninhabitable, it's unlivable, and that it's their job to carry on civilization and perform these horrible tough tasks and do all this mining and just kind of live a a drudgery life. There's one gentleman who makes his way to the surface and realizes this is a sham and then the book itself just kind of goes into this whole domino effect of what happens to this person. And then another one, Ubik, like I said, that one's almost like an indictment on commercial Western civilization about how capitalistic the future could be. Um, and how drug culture almost intertwines with this to the point where the government sends people on this colony. And uh, the big thing is marketing this board game where people take this drug and they live their lives vicariously through these these avatars on a board game. They, it's almost like they're having an acid trip and, and their experiences and their lives are informed by these products that they buy and they place on this board. Very dense novel incredible and then the last one that i'd like to bring up is the three stigmata of palmer eldritch it's another story that kind of ties into both of these the penultimate truth and also ubik it kind of goes into a little bit of the same where it's like there's a corporation that owns the colony that most of these people live on and the colony is created specifically because there was a war on earth and the earth is almost uninhabitable and again these people live there and they they live these lives that are basically um, forced on them through almost like this company policy similar to back in the 1800s there were a lot of mining towns where the company that owned the rights to the mine basically ruled the lives of the workers that were there. The people were paid with coins and stipends that were only redeemable in company stores. So essentially these mining companies own the lives of their people. And Philip K. Dick utilizes that analogy quite a bit, that instead of it just being a mining town, these are whole colonies and planets and things like that. So again, he spends quite a bit of time talking about dystopic futures, colonies, or futures where the earth isn't quite the way it is today. And he uses that a little bit to kind of make us think about our reality as it is today by using this this future place and being to set up these circumstances. Again, not unlike Star Trek, Star Trek was known for doing similar things where they put social issues kind of to the forefront, but masked them a little bit with this almost like an alien spin on, on Earth late 60s societal issues. And Philip K. Dick did the same thing. He wasn't as focused on, say, civil rights or things like that, but more heavy things. Philip K. Dick spent quite a bit of time looking at classical philosophical endeavors. A lot of these philosophers 
spent a lot of their time and their their energies looking at what it was like to be human, what it was like to be in this life that we were in now. Very dense thought. One of the most important thoughts is the concept called the cave, and this is in Plato's Republic. And the concept of the cave, for those of you who don't know, is the story of a person that looks at life, and life is essentially a shadow that's projected on a wall in a cave from a fire from behind a person. And what he was trying to get at is, is human reality is not true reality. We're experiencing it through almost like a funhouse mirror of what we see when, when we're looking at a, at a reflection projected on a wall of ourselves. And that's what we're experiencing. He was very heavily influenced with this early philosophical, classical, philosophical, almost Greek and Roman influence. Uh, he was aware of Christianity. He was also very aware of Buddhists and Zen teachings as well as Catholicism and Judaism. But he, I wouldn't say that he was stuck in any particular religion, but he was very influenced by this early thought. After The Man in the High Castle and after some of his late 60s writing became popular, kind of hit a slump for a short period in the early 70s. And he actually started to have a lot of personal issues going on in his life. And by the time he got to the mid-70s, he actually almost had somewhat of a nervous breakdown. Uh, in February 1974, he had, a, had to have a root canal. Uh, on top of all of these personal issues going on, he actually experienced some kind of a phenomena that he called the anamnesis. Essentially, what he believes happened is that he was hit with this intense vision of what reality really was, and it forced him to see things in an entirely different light the rest of his life. And that actually informed the rest of his writings. Pretty much after that, all of his writings take on this neo-Christianic bent to it. So in February 1974, he has this vision. And, and to kind of simplify it, essentially what that vision was is that the life that we live today is kind of a lie. That we're still in the Roman era. We're still living lives as Romans. But unfortunately, in order to show progress to show that what's really going on is kind of a distraction. What's ended up happening is, is the reality that we perceive is actually a layer on top of that reality. And we're actually going through our lives in, in the Roman era, but there's this alternate reality that's been projected on us that makes us believe that at his time in the 70s, so if we were to project it further to today in 2015, that we were living this life that was essentially just a mask of what's really going on. And as you can see, this sounds very similar, uh, except the circumstances are the opposite. But a lot of these things are kind of getting into like things that sound familiar to the Matrix. The Divine Invasion is a book that he wrote just prior to his death in 1982. It was published in 1981. And basically, it's the story of a child that's born with the purpose of liberating a planet. And in this near future, there's these colonies that have been spread out. And on one of these colonies, a woman is conceived of a child. It's an immaculate conception. There are multiple figures in history that have been born immaculate, according to mythology. But it's usually Jesus that's the one that everyone uh, is most aware of. But essentially, this child, whose name is Emmanuel, which means 
God is with us. His mission, so to speak, is to go back to Earth and to release Earth from this somewhat evil government entity that has control over everything. The way that they do it is almost like predetermined destiny, where this child is still in his mother's womb, and the mother and her two closest friends, the two people that are picked to help her through this process, they migrate back to Earth illegally. And in order to hide this child, they're in a crash, a spaceship crash or an airship crash where her basher, one of the narrators of the story, is basically put in suspended animation because he would essentially die and he's waiting for parts so that he can be reinvigorated and, and reanimated. And then the child, Emmanuel, is in a coma for a short period himself and when he comes out, he's essentially treated as a child with special needs or a child with mental challenges. Uh, but basically the child in the 80s, we would have called it mental retardation. And he's treated that way. This is basically to hide the fact that he has been brought here under this government entity's radar so that he has time to learn and grow and get the power and the strength that he needs in order to, to overwhelm this government. And it's not really from a militaristic sense. It's mainly just from the, the sense of once he becomes who he's supposed to be, he'll automatically be able to overcome the powers that be in this in this government, which they know it. They've actually been prepared for this. They've steeled themselves for this invasion, so to speak, by having their government entities pretty much everywhere. And this is written in the 80s before tablet computers and before mobile phones. But he actually foretold a lot of this stuff. This child is taught with a slate, they call it. And this slate is basically like a, a tablet that you would have now, an iPad. There's other things that he kind of foretold and saw. And there's a lot of people that when they read his books now are pretty blown away with how far thinking he was. So let's talk about The Matrix for a second. It's a story about a person that was living a life. That life was upended by experiences. He was sucked into a bunch of circumstances outside of his control but he realized very quickly that the circumstances brought him to a place where he, almost like Philip K. Dick, experiences anamnesis. He starts to see reality for what it is. And he has this group of people around him that get him from the place where he was mentally and physically and emotionally, and they walk him through this path. Now, obviously, this is another very old philosophical and literary mythological trope Joseph Campbell talks about this a lot, the path of the hero, the path of the warrior. Star Wars, Luke Skywalker goes through this same journey. But essentially what we see in The Matrix is probably the most accurate and most clear and concise version of a Philip K. Dick story, a classical penultimate Philip K. Dick story that you'll probably ever find. Because again, is a person that was living his life, was perfectly happy in that life, maybe felt like he didn't quite fit in, and then something happens, and it's very quickly revealed to him why he doesn't fit in, because he doesn't belong, because the reality that he's living in really isn't real. It's not meant to exist. He's not meant to fit in. There's another purpose in his life, not the purpose that was established for him that he thought he had, but there's another purpose. And these goes completely in to this book that Philip K. Dick wrote 
and it was published shortly before he died called The Divine Invasion. Once again, this story, to give you a really broad stroke of it, essentially what this story is, it's about this child. His name was Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a very uh, religiously loaded name. What Philip K. Dick was doing is he was creating this allegory for a Christ-like return. And it's set in the future. It's set in a world with cryogenics being a fact. Set in a world where he told it in a slightly humorous way. The person that's telling the story has actually been in cryogenesis or sleep for almost 20 years. And the story, he's not even sure. This is what they call the implausible storyteller. He's not sure if it's true or not anymore or if it's real because the place where he's in this cryogenic sleep is located right next to a radio transmitter for the, one of the larger radio stations in the area. So literally, there's times when commercials will pop into his storytelling. There's times when there's a narrative that goes in and out. So you're not quite sure what's going on. Is this person crazy? Is, are, is he reliving experiences that aren't quite true because they've been muddied for years of this radio transmission? Or is he telling his story as ably and capably as he can and then the world that we all live in is trying to inject their version of it into it you never quite know and that's actually kind of the fun of the story because it keeps you on your toes the entire time and once again this story is about this gentleman who's in cryogenic sleep and he's recounting this story that he remembers of a of a child and that child was born on a planet there's an accident that occurs that keeps this child from being the true person that he is. A little bit like the Neo story, but this child, over the years, they would call him mentally retarded at that time. Uh, you know, I think we've gotten a little bit smarter about things. The child was challenged. He was essentially in a car accident, and in that car accident, his growth was stunted. He's almost in a coma for a short period of time, and then when he gets out, he goes through a, a slightly different childhood than most people would. And in this childhood, he's allowed to kind of hide. The planet that he lives on is a loosely based retelling of Revelations, which is essentially where Earth is taken over by demonic forces, and they're trying to posture themselves to prepare for the second coming of Christ. And once again, Philip K. Dick had touches of religiousness in him and spirituality, but I don't consider him a Christian. I definitely don't see him as being, you know, he would not be hanging out with uh, religious thinkers of today. He was more of a philosophical bent, uh, but he did see a lot of these religious underpinnings uh, with philosophy and with just life in general. So I believe he was tackling it from a slightly different perspective. Emmanuel's purpose in life was almost like a, a Navy SEAL. He's injected into this planet. He's able to hide his growth and his emergence under the guise that he's this mentally challenged child. And he grew, gets this friend. The rest of the story is literally this very childlike uh, process of this child growing and basically his best friend is the one person that he has to rely on and that he can trust. Well, later on in the story, we find out that this relationship slightly alters and it changes. 
But basically, the Divine Invasion is what is set up as different versions of the same story that these very creative artists, I believe, have either caught on to themselves, they've either read this story, or they've heard versions of it told, or just Philip K. Dick's philosophy has just injected itself into the popular culture enough that they were able to pick it up through osmosis, and they were able to tell equally compelling versions of the story on their own. So let's spend the next few minutes talking about Radiohead's OK Computer. Now, there's several songs on this album that I believe are either referencing or directly influenced by the Divine Invasion. OK Computer, as you know, is essentially a 90s, late 90s album by Radiohead that basically puts you in a future dystopic world. It's almost like a police state, very similar to 1984. Basically, what Radiohead did was create a, a concept album that basically goes through and it talks about the trials and tribulations of being on this earth, living in this government-regulated planet. At that time, computers really weren't as ubiquitous as they are today. And it seemed to me like what they were grasping at is what computers were doing to society in general. And that was kind of their reference point. So the first song on the album talks about an air crash after a world war and then a neon sign that's scrolling where a person's born again. So it's obvious that this is a crash, right? An air crash, which to me is spot on exactly like the premise of the divine invasion. There's no doubt to me that they had read that book and and that book informed the lyrics of that song. Then when you go to Lucky, basically then you have... are referencing a person that comes out of an air crash to be the person that they're supposed to be and that they're there to change the way things are today. There's very little doubt in my mind that this album specifically, if not the entire album, but at least those songs as well as Carmel Police, Probably Let Down, have references to the Divine Invasion. So if you like that album, I highly suggest you read the book. So let's talk about Octune Baby. Octune Baby doesn't specifically reference the Divine Invasion per se, but I think that it is heavily referenced by Philip K. Dick, maybe more Vallis than anything else, the book before the Divine Invasion. But essentially what that album is about, another concept album in my mind, but it's basically a person that has an acid trip it kind of goes through their life looking at everything from almost like a carnival perspective. The first song, Zoo Station, is basically this person starting this acid trip. Mm-hmm. 
basically this trip that this person goes on physically and metaphorically through their their life. He goes back and he looks at things that happened in his life, bad relationships, whether one is considered a relationship with a lover or a father or even Jesus Christ. Did I disappoint you? The entire album is just this inventory of a person's life as they're going through the stress and the trauma of what an acid trip in my mind I, I related to an acid trip but just basically a recounting of a person's life from what stress has brought to them and then their next album Zuropa which is I think a more intriguing album from the ideas that are being brought up but it's not as thematic tight as Octune Baby is but the first song on Zuropa again is telling of a story of a future place that isn't quite as good as it can be and it's kind of in, injected again with all of these commercial thoughts and commercials being at you at all times the way the album starts is with a very popular saying at times especially in germany vorsprung dirk technique which is in some instances loosely translated as salvation through technology and that's essentially what the whole album zuropa is about but Zuropa also goes into this scenario, the song itself, about these people that live underground. There's another society out there. There's another way of life. There's another, there's a higher form of living that's out there. And they're basically imploring people to see that other way of life. Get your head out of the mud. Uh, dream of the world you want to live in. The, dreaming out loud. There's all these references to just getting out of the underground which again, to me, is shades of the penultimate truth. They kind of go into Vallis again. Do androids dream of electric sheep? I feel like there's a lot of Philip K. Dick references in both of those U2 albums. The Watchmen, I don't believe that Alan Moore specifically referenced any Philip K. Dick, but you kind of get the same thing, that there's this world that Dr. Manhattan is allowed to live in that he embodies in the whole story that is kind of like a lot of these Philip K. Dick characters that are naive, that are usually uh, more altruistic, that kind of see things more clearly than others, and they, they're allowed to operate on a little bit different level because they really don't belong. Um, it's not a direct correlation, but there are touches of Philip K. Dick in The Watchmen, and I'd love to get people's comments on things that they find as well because the watchman is probably the most dense graphic novel there ever will be written there's so many references to so many things they call back to each other so many times it's just it's unfair to call this a comic book or a graphic novel it's true literature the intent of this discussion 
to kind of introduce some of you to Philip K. Dick. It was also to kind of get some of these thoughts out and let you know that if you haven't read him and any of the things that we talked about, whether Zuropa or Octoon Baby or OK Computer, The Matrix, Total Recall, the Arnold Schwarzenegger version does spend a lot of time talking about this false reality stuff. For those that do spend the time doing it, and are inclined to do so, they will find that Philip K. Dick probably is one of the greatest philosophical thinkers of the pop culture era. If you have any questions, feel free to send in your comments or just reach out to us, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you. Thank you.